Welcome everyone to the Genetics Podcast. I'm really excited to be here today with Dr. Paul Nioi, the Vice President of Discovery and Translational Research at Alnylam Pharmaceuticals. If you're not familiar with Alnylam, they're a pharmaceutical company founded in 2002 based on the Nobel Prize winning breakthrough, the discovery of RNA interference or RNAi for short. Paul's team is focused on early target discovery and validation using genetics as well as a number of other kinds of omics and next generation technologies. And I think pretty uniquely, Alnylam has embedded genetics into their target discovery and validation process from day one. So we're going to spend a lot of time talking today about how genetics is used in the development of new medicines, some of the discoveries over the last couple of years from major population genomics programs that Paul and his team have been involved in, and also hopefully Paul's journey himself into genetics and drug discovery. So with that long-winded intro, Paul, welcome and thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Patrick. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I'd love to get started with how you got interested in genetics and drug discovery in the first place. Take me back to when you first decided that this is how you thought you might spend your career. Well, I, I kind of, my career sort of followed the development of technology in, in many ways that, that, that allows you to look at genetics in, in the first place. I was always someone that was fascinated by omics approaches, and I studied transcription factors when I was a PhD student. And during my postdoc, microarrays became popular. And I thought, well, this is an, an amazing way to be able to study transcriptomics. Instead of just looking at a couple of genes, I'm going to look at the whole program of gene expression that this transcription factor that I was interested in controls. And of course, with that comes a bit of learning about how do you handle all of this data? Five. How do you make sense of it? And so I, I became really fascinated by you know the, the kind of big, data omics type approaches. In the context of drug discovery, though, it was a really good example of something that was very hyped up and never lived up to expectations. So I, I was part of a group back in the early part of my career, a company called Shearing Plow, where our goal was to use transcriptomics to, to revolutionized drug discovery, where we're going to discover new targets, where we're going to make sure that drugs were safe. And we quickly discovered it wasn't quite that simple. And so I actually started getting interested in genetics at that point, mainly because I thought this is much simpler. Either you have the mutation or you don't. You have the phenotype or you don't. There's no, you know, you don't have 20,000 transcripts going up and down. You, you know, it was just a simpler problem for me to wrap my head around. And I joined Amgen in 2010, and I got really excited because we had a, a couple of programs that were, I think, preclinical when I joined, just about to go into the clinic, where human genetics had played such an amazing, prominent role in, in the discovery of these targets in the first place. So one was PCSK9. And everybody knows the story of, you know, there are individuals that have loss of function mutations in PCSK9. They have very low cholesterol levels. And you could also find people that have gain of function mutations where you see the opposite phenotype. And so that was what led us to this being an interesting target at Amgen for, for cholesterolemia. And similarly, we had another program, which was called Romasuzumab, that targeted a gene called sclerostin. And sclerostin is involved in maintaining the skeleton. And there are individuals that lack the sclerostin gene and they have big, bulky, strong bones. And so again, there was a connection between what you see from genetics and you know discovering a drug. And 
So th- this was a, a just an interesting connection, and I and I think also knowing that there had been so many failures in in every company's pipeline. You know, the the, the rate of failure in in the farm industry is very high. It seemed to me that it just made a lot of sense that at least if your initial discovery of a target and your understanding of disease biology came from a human and not from a contrived animal model or cells and culture, but it actually came from studying humans, then it was much more likely to work in the clinic. And of course, that has borne out. There are a number of retrospective analyses that have shown that. And that was really the point where I got very, very interested in in genetics. I ended up, Amgen bought Decode Genetics. I ended up going to Iceland and was very privileged to be oh, able wow. to work with the, the cool Decode data for, for, for quite some time. And, you know, Kari Stephenson was a, was a great mentor and taught me, taught me a lot about the ins and outs of genome-wide association studies, et cetera. And so that, that, was a, that was a brilliant introduction to hardcore genetics for me. And then subsequently joined Alnylam in, in 2018 and set up our genetics efforts here five years ago now. So that was my, my story of, of how I got to, <laughs> to where I am now. Okay, what was it like living and working in Iceland? I had Kari on the podcast. I don't I don't remember exactly which number episode, but it was probably about a year ago now. And he's obviously an amazing scientist and has been at the forefront of the field for a very long time. What was that like? It was amazing. The the place itself, I don't know if you've ever been. It's an amazing only once. An amazing place. And so I was living in California at the time. And I, I've got four kids now. I only had three at the time. And so we upped sticks from sunny Thousand Oaks, wow. California, to Reykjavik, and we had from from a personal point of view an absolutely an, an amazing, an amazing time. We probably could have lived there forever. My wife still longs to to to, to move back there someday, but we loved it. And it, that this was two thousand and fourteen, and at that point, no one had data like Decode. So I think we had sequenced 3,000, whole genome sequenced 3,000 Icelanders and genotyped about half the population, so 150,000 people. And then because of the, the, the genealogy exists, I think back to the, the year 800 or, or some, something like that, yeah. uh, you, you can do an imputation in, in amazing accuracy. So we had this incredible set of genetic data. And then, of course, we had access to a multitude of medical records and we were doing studies that back then people could just imagine you know they, they couldn't do anywhere else so it was it was incredible that's amazing and you mentioned this retrospective analysis that a lot of groups had done and you've kind of yeah. seen the evolution over the past 10 years of what the genetics and drug discovery toolkit is like what what is it that makes genetically validated or verified targets a lot more successful. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the major ways that genetics helps. You talked a little bit about linkage to the phenotype itself, but what what else is there that's under that toolkit? Yeah. So th- there's there's kind of, I would say, two major components to it, and, and they're linked to the reasons that drugs fail in the clinic. So the, the two major reasons that you have clinical failures are a lack of efficacy or some type of safety signal. Okay. So if we unpack that, you think first about the efficacy side. You know, I, I would say that in the majority of those cases, 
the reason that the drug failed because of a lack of efficacy is because the target, the drug target is wrong in the first place. We were targeting something that doesn't actually seem to be important in the context of, of the human disease. And if you, if you keep stepping back and say, all right, where did this target come from in the first place? The majority of those cases, you'll find it was from an animal mod- model, a hypothesis that someone had that was published in the latest cell paper or you know, some, some contrived culture system or something along those lines, not from a human. And so the, the, the kind of premise of it was, well, if you use genetics, you use human genetics as, as, as your discovery engine, then perhaps what you're going to find is actually going to be more relevant in, in a human. Of course, you can argue, well, you had a mutation from birth, drugging someone in you know, their 40s or 50s is very different, but, but still... When we've looked at that question retrospectively and said, okay, if we look at all of the approved drugs over you know, the past 20 years, for example, and we say versus those that were not approved, what do we, what do we find in terms of human genetic validation? And, and you actually see that if you have genetic validation for your target, you're somewhere between two and five times more likely to to get to an approval. And, and that's a huge improvement yeah. from, from where we are, where, you know, 94% of all trials or something like that failed historically. Yeah. So that, that's the, the, the first piece. The other part that is often overlooked is, is the safety part. And we published a study, I think four years ago now, where we essentially look at that question in a very similar way to the, to the efficacy question, except this time we said, okay, if we look at safety signals in the clinic for drugs that have failed, could we have predicted that happening from the genetics of the drug target? So this, of course, is just on-target safety, not off-target safety. But if you look at the genetics of the target, you may find that it has an association or there are variants that have an association with the desired phenotype, the disease that you're trying to treat. But if it's pleiotropic and you see, let's say, three or four other phenotypes that perhaps are undesirable, can you predict those happening as well? And the answer is yes, you can. And, and actually, if you, if you take that into the, to account, the not just looking for evidence of on-target safety, but looking sorry, evidence of on-target efficacy, but looking for evidence of on-target safety, again, you have a big influence on the likelihood of being successful. So those are the two principal ways, making sure that the drug that you develop from an on-target point of view is safe and stacking the odds in your favor that you're going to see efficacy in the clinic. Maybe we can talk about the safety side a little bit more because we've talked, I've sure. talked to a lot of guests on the efficacy side, and, and I think you explained both really clearly. On the safety side, it seems like there might be two two major pieces. One is what you described, which is sort of like a, a FIWAS, right? Where you're taking the gene, That's looking right. at yeah. all the all the possible phenotypes that it relates to, not just the one, maybe the, the disease you're interested in, but other off-target ones. But then I think there's another, maybe more de-risking side of it, which is looking for human knockouts who have who have the gene of interest completely knocked out and are otherwise healthy, right? Maybe you can talk a little bit about where the 
where the data points you to potential safety concerns to be on the lookout for and where maybe it tells you that knocking this gene out with a small molecule or gene therapy or otherwise is actually very likely to be A-OK because there are humans walking around with this gene knocked out in, yeah. in the real world. Yeah, that, it's, a, it's, a really, it's a really good example, actually, of, of where you can use genetics for that question. So let me give you an example to, to illustrate this. So we, we have a drug on the island called Lumasaran that's approved in the U.S. to treat a disease called primary hyperoxaluria, or PH. And this is a defect in the liver that, that causes an inability to convert or to metabolize something called glycolate. And when you lack this particular enzyme, you produce an in, something insoluble called oxalate, which ends up in the blood, it precipitates and, and it lodges in the kidney and, and often presents as kidney failure in, in, in kids. So we had an idea, a hypothesis that, well, we could stop that conversion. So we knew what the genetic defect was. It's a mutation in a gene called AGT in the liver. And we knew that, that, that biochemistry is really well worked out. And we knew that the, the enzyme that catalyzes the conversion of glycolate to oxalate is called HAO1 or GO1 glycolate oxidase. And, and, and if we blocked that, we knocked it down with siRNA, we were confident that we could stop oxalate from being produced. But we didn't know if it was going to be safe, right? So that, that became the question. Well, we, know the, we know the biochemistry. We, we sort of not know what's going on in the disease. We've got a good idea about how to treat this. But is this going to be okay? What happens if you've got a ton of glycolate building up now? Is that going to be a bad right. thing? So we did a study with the Born and Bradford cohort, and we actually found one individual who was null for HAO1 or glycolate oxidase. I remember reading this paper a while back. Yeah, go on. But I do remember reading this yeah. thinking how amazing and it so was. So we were, yeah, we were excited. So there, there, there's a South Asian cohort, as you probably already know, and there's a high rate of consanguinity within, within that population. And so this person had long stretches of autozygosity, and we, we found that, you know, in one of these stretches that she was on both alleles of the, the, the same loss of function mutation in HAO1. So we were able to, to collaborate with the PIs there and actually have her volunteer to come back into the clinic and do essentially a type of deep phenotyping study to look at her. So she was in her 50s. She'd had kids. She, she was otherwise very healthy, took some blood. Her glycolate was through the roof, <laughs> like 12 times the upper limit of normal. Wow. And, and, and you know, we, we, we sequenced, et cetera, and made sure that she was a carrier of the mutation. But she was living, you know, otherwise healthy life. And that was the piece of evidence that gave us confidence that, okay, here's someone that's had this from birth. Biochemically, they've definitely got it. We can see that they've got it. And, and yet, you know, they're, they're, they're actually healthy. And so that was really instructive for us to say, okay, this is probably going to be well tolerated when we, when we take it to, into the population. Of course, we're in some cases with the Masteram, we're talking about treating children and so you know it, it even adds that extra level of of concern that we want to make yeah. absolutely certain that this is this is going to be safe so so that's like the most beautiful example if you can find people that are null for for your target and they have and you see a benefit and you don't see any downside to it that's the most wonderful example most of the time you don't have that though most of the time you're dealing with 
maybe more common variants with lower effect sizes, missense mutations where you don't necessarily know the, you know, is it upregulating downright? What what is it doing to the the function? And so, but you can still perform a few assays as you as you pointed out. You can look at the the associations that that come from that. And then often there may be some lab work that you need to do in combination just to characterize the variants a little bit, just to understand what they're doing and, and unpick it. So that can be a little bit more complicated, but still, you know, very instructive when it comes to the, the biology of the target, which is essentially what you're you're trying to understand. Yeah. No, that's a that's a beautiful example of it. The since the days of 140, 150,000 genotypes and 3,000 whole genomes in Iceland. Yeah. You've now got <laughs> collaborators like the Born and Bradford study, who I greatly admire. I think they've done a tremendous amount of science and they've also engaged with a community in a really deep level that I don't think we see a lot of population genomics programs do. We've got the UK Biobank, we've got many others around the world. What's changed from the the Iceland and decode days when that really was the the largest and most comprehensive? program to where we are today? Well, in, in a lot of ways, the, the big change has been the ability to affordably sequence large numbers of people. And you gave, you know, UK Biobank as an example. It's a, a perfect example of, of this type of approach where it started in 2006. So this was before I even arrived in Iceland. It started in 2006, but they recruited half a million people between 2006 and 2010. And then in 2018, Al got together with Regeneron and several other big pharma companies to sequence the exomes of all 500,000 people in, in that cohort. And because we were looking at exomes and because the cost of sequencing had dropped precipitously from you know the 10 years prior to that, it was something that, you know, coming together in a free and competitive way with, with a group of other companies where essentially you're just collaborating on generating data and everyone can ask whatever question they want about the data. But then, you, you know, you're splitting the cost of that by whatever it was, eight, 10 companies yeah. that were involved. It becomes realistic to be able to do something like this. So, and then, you know, you, you have a, a, a data set that is just, I, you couldn't have even conceived of something like this 10 years ago. So it's incredible. When you look at a program like the UK Biobank, if we just take the UK Biobank as an example, I'm interested to hear from you what the most useful directions for the future would be. Is it about increasing the scale, say from 500 to 5 million? Is it about the same people, but more diverse types of data? So we know the UK Biobank is doing imaging and taking all kinds of useful samples to do more, you know, maybe deeper phenotyping on that same population. There's also an important piece around in, enrolling a more representative population, not just of the UK, but of the world. And then also this recontactability or the longitudinal aspect of these programs. So how important is it to have a snapshot in time versus a, a sample every year, for example, to allow you to understand how a disease might progress? I'd love to hear from you if you could pick one or two of those that are on your wish list where the focus would be? So we recently, or maybe a year or so ago now, joined a new initiative in, in the UK called Our Future Health, which you could think of as, as the big brother to, to UK Biobank. And they're not quite the same, but 
So I'm, I'm actually the chair of the Founders Board for, for our future health for, for this next year. And our goal, again, this is based in the UK, our goal is to recruit 5 million people in, in the UK. And for that cohort to represent the population of the UK as a whole in terms of socioeconomic status, but also importantly, race and, and making sure that we have groups that are historically understudied, actually represented at the levels that, that these populations are, are found within, within the UK and they have access to, to medical records. We're going to generate genetic information on, on, on these individuals and volunteers. So that kind of answers your question in a lot of ways, because there's a couple of things. One is, you know, as you sequence more and more people, you, it becomes, you know, the, the really interesting variants are rarer and rarer and rarer, and you need bigger and bigger cohorts to actually have enough carriers of each of these interesting rare variants to be able to make sense of what they're doing. So the scale is, is really important. And then, of course, the other way to look at that question is, well, if you have different ethnicities represented in the data, then you're going to find interesting variants that are specific to each of those populations and that maybe are not found in the, found in the white European population, but are actually very prevalent in you know, another, another group. So that, th- these are important ways that we can you know, explore the role of each gene in, in disease. So that part's really important. The other thing that's key with our future health is the ability to recontact participants. We have a really interesting example that we found in UK Biobank, whereas, as I'm sure you know, you cannot recontact participants. Where So we, we have a, for a condition called hereditary ATTR amyloidosis. And this is a condition caused by mutation in, in a gene called transthyretin, missense mutation, number of different missense mutations. The most common of which is a mutation called V122i, and it's found in predominantly, almost exclusively in people of West African origin. And in UK Biobank, you find it in individuals of, of Black Caribbean descent, mostly. When we look in UK Biobank at carriers of this mutation, we found around 400 carriers I think it's three homozygous carriers. A percentage of those people had signs in their medical records that were consistent with them having the disease. So right. they had carpal tunnel syndrome, they had autonomic dysfunction, evidence of, of, of neuropathy, a number of the hallmark symptoms. And so we would love to have had an ability to say, hey, you should go and see the doctor or, or have them contacted by a physician and worked yeah. up to see if indeed they did, they, they did have the condition. And by the way, even now, if you look in the medical records, none of them are diagnosed, none of them, zero. Right. So that is, you know, it's part and parcel of UK Biobank, but it's something that we're hoping with our future health, it's going to be a way of, of pioneering, you know, the ability to detect genetic disease earlier and actually intervene in a way that is going to help help those patients. So that's the other really, really key part of that for us. The, the UK Biobank isn't alone in having this recontact challenge. What, what do you think it is that has changed in the last couple of years that has made everyone a lot more focused on this and, and made it difficult before? I think that, that there's a couple of things. And by the way, I would say that it's, I'm not sure that it has fun 
radically changed. There's still a raging debate about whether this is actually doable or not, partly because of concerns over overwhelming the healthcare system, because not everything is 100% penetrant. And you could be a carrier, but you might, you know, you might go your whole life and, you know, you you never have whatever the, the condition is, but you might feel like you should go and see your GP. And so we have to, we have that needs to be worked out. We have to figure out how you people data in a responsible way and you balance the burden that's going to be placed on the healthcare system if you were to just dump everything on onto participants. So and that hasn't been worked out, frankly. So that part I would say is is a work in progress and and, and hasn't hasn't changed. But I do think that there is a there is a growing desire to shift the focus of medicine from treating chronically ill patients to to one of prevention and of course this would be one tool to to be able to do that if you you know knew someone had a high polygenic risk of type 2 diabetes could you could you intervene early and actually prevent them from developing full-blown t2d or you know could you find patients that are predisposed to hypertension or have hypertension and treat them before they, they develop cardiovascular disease. And, and by doing so, maybe then you can create a more sustainable healthcare system. So, so that's sort of the long-term goal of, of efforts like our future health. And, and, you know, so one step along the way is how do you engage the participants and give them information and give them the power to you know act on their health? Yeah, I completely agree. It's uh, I think it's an amazing an amazing initiative. And the U- part of the reason I moved to the UK initially to do my PhD was how forward thinking the government has been here in backing yeah. these. First was hundred thousand genomes. Joe makes England. Well, even before that was UK Biobank and many of the early cohort studies like Children of the Nineties. And and I just yeah. think it's, it's a lead in this regard. I wanted to ask one follow-up on the topic of population genomics programs and, and target discovery before we then get into a little bit more about RNAi and the work you're doing at Alnylam. You mentioned earlier about how genetics can be used as a kind of discovery engine, and we talked few, through a couple of examples around really significant monogenic disease genes. I wanted to hear your thoughts around how you use genome-wide association studies, polygenic scores, Cases where you may not have a single gene that has an enormous effect on a phenotype that you can focus on, but actually you may have hundreds that have small to medium effects. How do you transition into this world where the genetic story isn't quite so clean as, as the monogenic world? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. It's almost like, you know, going back to good old fashioned genotyping arrays and trying to scratch in your head and wondering what to make of all these common signals. But we've gotten a bit more sophisticated. But so I, I would I would say a couple of things. One is I, I do think that monogenic diseases obviously you, you can go to OMIM and read all about them and you know a lot of those targets and ideas were where we started at Old Island. That was the the valuable source of data that, that we had at hand. What's what's different about GWAS, especially in this era, with, with let's take the UK Biobank data for example, is that when you when you sequence people on on, this, on that sort of scale, so you have exomes, genomes on half a million people. Of course, you'll find carriers of pathogenic variants, and you'll see evidence of, of disease. But what's not 
in Omen, because often it's there's no reason for it to be there, is if you carry a rare loss of function variant, but it's benefiting you in, in, in some way. Now, you might find something like, you know, PCSK9 and very low cholesterol, but there are, there are, we've seen numerous examples of rare loss of function variants in genes that pref- that confer a beneficial effect on on individuals right. but are not found in in you know the classic genetic databases for example we published a paper last year on finding where we identified loss of function carriers in a gene called inhibit e or inhbe and what we did is we we did a we aggregated the variants. So we did a, a burden test. So we took all of the loss of function variants of different flavors across the whole 500k cohort, and we lumped them together and did a gene-based analysis with some with some filtering, but just focusing on on each gene. And we found that individuals that had loss of function in inhibit E had more beneficial distribution of fat. In their bodies, so less fat around the middle and more on the hips, as measured by by waist to hip ratio, and and that fat in the middle of your body, and I I suffer from it myself, is is uh, is bad for you. You know, it has particular qualities that increase your risk of diseases like type two diabetes, cardiovascular disease, NASH, high blood, and 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 of course, what we see in this. And these carriers, there's not only is the fat distributed differently, but they have lower risk of the diseases that I that I just mentioned. So that actually became a new target for us at all. But it was, you know, it was just a straight up. It was one gene. Yeah. It was it was loss of function, and it was easy to interpret from that point of view. And we've seen a, a, a number of things like that. So those are the easiest things to to act on because you know for sure what the gene is. And you know the, the what the variant is doing to the gene, and so therefore you can you know you can come up with a, a pretty good idea about what your drug should do. The more complicated thing is, you know, honestly, I I we haven't really wrapped our heads around specific use cases for polygenic scores at at, at this point in time. It is going to be part of our future health. Actually, they're they're going to develop and they're going to come up with polygenic scores, I think, for the whole cohort over the course of time for a variety of conditions. And so we'll get a really good insight from that at a population level as to how powerful these these things can be. I mean, we, we know with for some examples, right, that you do have similar effect sizes for a for a polygenic score in terms of a right. risk of, or, of a disease as you do for you know mono, the monogenic version of the of the same disease but i'm picking what what's the important part yes. amongst however many you know variants are making up that score is a is a tricky thing what's the what's the critical node to go after yeah, I'm interested to see. It feels like that's a problem that a lot of people are figuring out how to crack because I I don't I don't know the answer. We had Peter Donnelly on a previous episode and probably he knows the answer. I'll get him back on yeah. to ask what, <laughs> what he thinks. But it seems like the kind of thing that it's either gonna align on a number of pathways, and like you said, you can figure out the critical note, or it's not, and it's gonna be complete chaos. And then we just use it for screening and early detection and rely on other yeah. kinds of interventions. But probably it's a mix yeah. of both. 
I wanted to shift gears a little bit to RNA interference. This is the the cornerstone technology that I mentioned in the intro, Nobel Prize winning that was behind Al Nilam's initial entrance into precision medicine and, and the market. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what RNA, RNAi is, how does it work, and also just compare and contrast to some of the other precision medicine type of techniques like CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing that people may, if they're not too steeped in the field, be unclear on what the difference is between RNAi gene editing and some of the other concepts. Yeah, happy to do that. So in a nutshell, you know, RNAi in its natural form is a mechanism that every cell in your body has to defend itself from viral infection, RNA viruses in particular. That's why it exists. So within each cell, there is a protein complex that's called RISC, which is RNA-induced silencing complex is, the, is what the term stands for. And its job is to recognize double-stranded RNA floating around in the cell which shouldn't be there, of course, because RNA is single-stranded, not double-stranded. So if it sees double-stranded RNA, it binds to it, and it winds the, the two strands, it takes one of the strands, and it goes searching for things that, that match that sequence, i.e., you imagine that you've been infected with an RNA virus, and it's grabbed a bit of that RNA genome, and now it's hunting for the intact genome. When it finds it, it chops up into, into bits and, and silences expression of, of, of the viral genes. And that's its role. But as with, with all exciting discoveries, we, we, we figured out ways of, of hijacking that system to, to do other things. So the, the original data that started Allen Island was actually exactly that. It was the, an experiment that showed if you, if you make synthetically double-stranded RNA, and you make it complementary to a, a human gene, and you introduce it into cells and culture, well, that will then get incorporated into risk, and risk will go hunting for what it thinks is a foreign invader, but actually you've tricked it into to going looking for you know, your gene of interest in a human cell. It'll find it, and it'll, it, it will chop the transcript and stop it from being expressed. So it's called Gene silencing is the, the term that's often used. So that that was the idea. And so Al Nilam started because we, you know, we thought, well, if you can do that in vitro, imagine if you could turn this into a medicine. Imagine if you could silence any gene in any cell. The the and then you can drug anything. You could silence yeah. anything. You could you you don't have this issue of druggability anymore. You're able to go after any gene, encoding anything, and it could be transformative. And, and that has been and still is the mission of Al Nylum. So we started in 2002, but double-stranded RNA does not look like a small molecule drug, doesn't look like an antibody floating around. We had to figure out ways of, of protecting the RNA and stopping it from being degraded, getting it into cells, cells that, you know, of, of interest. And then doing what it needed to do, silencing the, silencing the gene. And so really the first decade plus of Al Nilam's existence was solving some of these fundamental problems. We, we figured out how to stabilize the, the, the RNA. We figured out how to incorporate it into lipid nanoparticles or to add conjugates that target the, the drug to the liver. And now we have a, an amazing platform where we can target 
any gene, any transcript. In and we have this amazing profile of our, of our drugs where, you know, we, we take Incliseran, for example, which is a PCSK9 silencing sRNA that was discovered here at Allen Island. You can give that drug once every six months. Wow. And you see this, this clamped knockdown of, of, of the PCSK9 transcript in the liver. So imagine that sort of a profile, you know, you only need to go, you, you don't take a pill every day, you go and see your doctor once every six months, get your cholesterol checked and get your booster of, of, of Incliseran and, and, and off you go. So it's, it's an amazing, amazing platform. And it really, truly is. It's a whole new class of medicines. And what is the major barrier to moving from the liver to every other organ in the body? What, what's the biggest set of challenges there? I imagine it's not genetics and target discovery, but maybe some other things. You're, you're absolutely right. As soon as you get into a tissue, there are obvious targets to go after. You're, you're back to omen. You're like, oh, there's all this yeah. stuff that, that's been known for ages. And you know, we don't need to do anything too creative. We just need to get into, <laughs> into this, this tissue. Delivery is the big challenge. So with the liver, ultimately what we settled on was, was we add a sugar onto the end of the sRNA. It's called Galnag. And it's recognized by a receptor on the surface of, of liver cells, hepatocytes called the acyloglycoprotein receptor, AS, ASGPR. And that's it, its whole job. The reason it exists on the surface of liver cells is to grab things from the blood and internalize them. And it's, it's supposed to target them for degradation, but we can get around that. And so our sRNA gets internalized into hepatocytes. There's loads of ASGPR on the surface of, of each hepatocyte. It turns over with high frequency. So it's a beautiful system. The challenge is, well, what's the equivalent system in, in different tissues and how do we, how do we exploit that and, and achieve delivery there? So we are now in the CNS with our with our first foray there. So we we published a paper last year, I think, in Nature Biotech, showing that we have novel conjugates. So not the sugar that I mentioned, but something different that we can put onto the end of the sRNA. And if you administer it, administer that at least in preclinical species, intrathecally, so into the into the CSF, into the spine, that you get broad distribution and silencing of, of targets in the right. brain. So we're still you know, pending clinical data. We don't have the human clinical data yet, but that could potentially be, you know, another tissue that we've we've been able to target. And we continue to work on this and and you know in terms of like where can we go next. And I will add one thing which is genetics is a key part of deciding where we go next because we are looking at well, what are the targets? Let's say we could target lung or we could target muscle or we could target, you know, blood, you know, immune right. cells. What do we know about genetic conditions and what we might be able to do there? And it helps us just to kind of organize our thoughts when we're, we're, we're balancing where to put our efforts. It makes total sense. And you've got, you've got only a limited amount of resources that you can focus on different places. Yeah. You've got to pick your, you've got to pick your next route very carefully. Yes, exactly. A little bit of a maybe left field question here, but how do you, you, you can do a, you can learn a lot from naturally occurring human data. And we've talked a lot about that today, but how, how do you know that there's not something that you're missing? That's just not naturally occurring that the, what you were just telling me about the very expansive toolbox that you have of knocking out any gene in the liver. It may just be that there, there may be a gene or a set of genes that you could selectively knock down. 
that does something spectacular, but it just isn't observed in the human data. So you don't know about it. Are you thinking about how to wrap your hands around that kind of question? Yeah, that's a really good question. There's actually, I think about this as there's three classes of genes based on what we know from genetics. There's those that are brilliant drug targets because you know, people that have loss of function have got all kinds of benefits and they're doing well otherwise healthy, but they've got some trait that is really beneficial. The genetic superheroes, so to speak. The genetic super, yes. And then you have genes where, you know, it'd be a really bad idea to target because you you see that they they may be the cause, loss of function may be the cause of a genetic disease, for example. And you know very clearly that that's not something you would want to, to recreate the drug. And then you have genes where you don't know anything because they're so constrained evolutionarily, you just don't find variants that you can anchor on to understand Mm. what is the importance of that gene. Presumably, they have some role in development, but that doesn't mean that they're bad drug targets. It doesn't mean that if you target them, you know, postnatally, that they're actually going to do something bad. And and, and a, mm. a really interesting example of this is a gene called angiotensinogen or AGT. So angiotensin is an important part of the, the way in which your body controls blood pressure, but it's a highly constrained gene. And we know from animal studies that if, if you knock it out, it, it has a big impact on the development of the kidney. The kidney doesn't develop properly and it's lethal. And that's probably what, why you don't find it in humans, why it's depleted for loss of function. But it's the target of a number of classes of drugs, angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers, and it treats blood pressure. We have an siRNA that is called Zalbisiran that is in clinical trials at the moment that knocks down the AGT transcript that we've shown in phase one that we could lower blood pressure in, in patients, volunteers. But you wouldn't tell that necessarily yeah. from, I mean, there are common variants that sort of give you a hint that there's, that, you know, it has a role, but it's not a strong signal. So, so there, there, there has to be some scrutiny placed, which I think is where you were going on that subset of genes that are constrained, but could be, right. could be really good targets. So I think there's some functional piece to that. I know I, I spent a lot of time at the beginning telling you how bad an idea yes. was to look in a mouse and cells and culture. But I think if done in combination with genetics, you know, large functional genomic screens, for example, do have a place and they do help you to unpick some of some the, the role of some of those genes where maybe all you have is a common variant that's got a very small effect the genes constrained, but you can learn something from some lab data that you could generate that's going to help you to, to figure out, well, yeah. maybe this is actually really important. So, yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. And there are a lot of those genes. Thank you. You took that question in a direction I wasn't expecting, and, and yeah. it's got me really thinking. We're, we're very close to running out of time here. I want to ask you one more question, which is just, what is it that you're most excited about right now? Could be a technology new piece of science, anything that isn't on everybody's radar yet that you think would be useful to share? Not on everyone's radar. Yes. It could be okay. on some people's well, radar. You get extra points depending <laughs> on how, how little it's on everyone's radar. 
No, my my. I actually, I I don't think our future health is on everybody's radar. I agree with at that. The moment. Yeah, and that is what I'm, I'm. I am most excited about because I think not only is it going to be an amazing cohort because of the scale of it, but I think the downstream potential that it has to change healthcare is 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 so exciting that I am I'm really all in on it. Yeah, Very I couldn't excited. agree more. It's a good choice. I thought you might pick that one. It's, uh, yeah. and I don't think it's, I think it will be in the next year or two, much more, especially when the first yeah. data releases start to come out. Well, Paul, thank you. I, I really enjoyed this. I learned a ton. It was amazing listening to the stories that you've were able to tell about genetics and drug discovery. And, and it seems like you've had a front row seat to some of the most interesting programs on earth. So thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time. Great. Thanks, Patrick. And thanks everyone for listening. As always, we appreciate any feedback you have on the episode. Please feel free to share it with a friend. If you liked it, leave a review on your favorite podcast player. We're on Apple, Spotify, everywhere in between. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.